Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. All right, well, good evening. Welcome, welcome to our second study in the book of Jonah. Let's pray and let's jump into the word. Well, Father, we are gathered here tonight because we need to hear from you. We need to have your word uh, wash us and cleanse us and help us, Lord. And Lord, I was reminded uh, just moments ago, Lord, and remembering the movie that we watched this last week, um, Jesus Revolution, where Chuck Smith was like, this is this book is life. Let's open it and share it together. And that's what we want to do tonight, Lord. So fill us again with another meal from your word. Help me, Lord, to speak. Help these ears to hear, both mine and those who hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our second study is going to be the second chapter of the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to chapter 2. While you're doing that, a quick little recap of chapter 1. This is going to be the Cliff Notes version. So Jonah is a prophet. He is serving with the king Jeroboam II in Israel. That would be the northern um, portion of Israel at this time. He has prophesied before about the land being gathered to Jeroboam and then kind of arriving or achieving that conquest through military victory from the Assyrians. Um, and from what we read in Second uh, Kings chapter 14, they've been quite successful. But in this story of Jonah, the Lord gives him a very different direction to go, basically, with his ministry. He says, basically, take a hard left. I want you to go to your enemies, the Assyrians. Specifically, he says to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of the ancient um, uh, country of Assyria or region. And I want you to speak to them, to deal with them. And then Jonah just says a big old, eh. he just goes silent. He goes off the map. He goes as far as he can, the opposite direction, he ends up in a ship on its way to Tarshish, which is most likely modern-day Spain, leaving the, from the city, the port city of Joppa. And then the Lord provides this huge storm. The people in the, in, the, in, in the ship, as well as the captain, are trying to figure out why the storm is happening. Turns out the reason is because of Jonah. Jonah knows this. They discover it bit by bit. And by the end of the chapter, they have thrown Jonah overboard at his request. He says, this is, this is really my fault that this storm has happened. God has caused this. You need to throw me overboard. And so they do. And a giant fish is there to get him. So that's chapter one in a nutshell. Now let's dive into chapter two, which is the chapter of... Yes, do you have a question? I have a yes. Okay. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and well, it does, doesn't it? When it says, and, and so in the last verse, as she's asking about the last verse of chapter one, it says, now the Lord had prepared 
a great fish. This isn't just a random fish. This isn't just a, you know, a happenstance. It says the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that's where chapter two, like basically that's the cliffhanger, right, from last week. <laughs> that's where chapter two now picks up in. And chapter two, if you've, if you've read through it, it's, it's not a long chapter. It's like 10 verses. And most of it is a prayer. Um, and we'll be spending, you know, about half of our time just talking about the actual prayer itself. But at the beginning, I just want to talk through um, a couple of the issues that stem from that last verse, 17, as you pointed out, as well as the first verse. So the first verse now in chapter 2, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, and I'm going to stop right there before we get into the prayer, and then the, the prayer will come after it. So I feel like it's really good at the beginning of this study to just address the elephant in the room, a.k.a. address the, the whale, the great fish in the room, and talk about this. Because this is, this is an issue that does trip up quite a few people. What was this fish? How did in the world did that happen? This, how could he stay there for three days? Right? How could he survive? All this kind of stuff. So let's jump into it. I was anticipating that those would be kind of some of the questions. So in our first slide here, I did a little research on, uh, through various commentaries about what would be the fish types that were big enough to actually swallow Jonah. And in the study that I did, there were two. The first is the blue whale, also known as Balenoptera musculus. I'm sure you didn't know that. I didn't know that until actually just earlier today. Also known as the sulfur bottom whale. So the blue whale is one of the biggest, well, it is the biggest creature on earth. Um, they can be up to 30 meters long, which is almost 100 feet. Um, their mouths can be 10 to 12 feet wide. So, and when they, when they are eating food, they, they don't chomp. They just open their mouths and they, they swallow abundant amounts of water and then they push the water out this way, but they have like a series of filters basically inside their mouth. You can kind of see that on both of these pictures here. They're like filters, and so they push the water out, and so only the thing that remains in their mouth is stuff that's bigger than those things. So even small, small things may, not, may, may fit through there, but the larger the creature, so that's how they get their, their food. So this is definitely a possibility of the kind of fish. Now, if you've done any other kind of studies on the book of Jonah, you've probably heard all kinds of other things. Like this could have been a very unique fish that was a once-in-a-lifetime God-created fish. Completely possible. We don't have any you know, bone records. We don't have the fish's dental records. We don't have <laughs> their thumbprint, you know. We don't know what the name of the fish was. Um, but there are some interesting things about the blue whale to consider. Um, one is what I said about the, the, the size of its mouth. I mean, 10 to 12 feet wide. That's, that's incredible. That's, so my, my wingspan is about 6'2". So you've got to add about another 2 feet, 2 or 3 feet on either side, and that's its mouth. The width then we got to have the issue of how, how, wide does, how high then does it open, right? And I, I don't know the information on that. 
It also has four to six stomach chambers. And depending on the chamber, I don't know if you've ever studied like uh, cows, for example, a cow's digestion is separated into parts where they kind of break down usually the grass or, or grain that they eat into various kind of methods of, of the cow <laughs> breaking down the food. A whale's stomach is similar. Like every, every, every chamber has different kind of digestive processes. Um, some people think that it probably wasn't a whale simply because of the fact that these digestive juices are rather toxic and very acidic, and they would have probably killed Jonah, which is something we'll actually be circling back to. Um, there is also within these creatures an incredible um, air storage chamber. So in their head, like, like whales have to, they're mammals, so they have to breathe air when they come up. They take you, you've probably seen them when they surface or videos of them. They have to blow a hole that blows out, but then they take in massive amounts of air and they could be underwater for hours. They, they have an, a, a compartment in their head that is seven feet by seven feet by 14 feet. So that's like, that's like a New York apartment. <laughs> and trust me, I, I had an apartment in New York. That's pretty close. So this whole compartment in their head is a cavity that is just empty because it's full of air. There was this interesting article from the Cleveland Plain de Dealer. This is from, I, I forget exactly the year, but a dog had been swallowed by a blue whale and fell off of a ship, and they actually captured the whale later and dissected it, and they found the dog safe and sound in, in the chamber where the air was kept in the whale's head. Isn't that fascinating? Also, there are stories about uh, the blue whale that when it senses it has something in its stomach and it's dying, that it will actually eject or vomit out its contents when it, when it is on its way towards death, which is interesting considering what we, what we will read towards the end of our chapter. So that's one possible option for a fish that we know of that could actually hold at least space-wise and swallow an entire, an entire man. I'm not sure. The scriptures don't tell us that he ended up in the whale's nasal air cavity. <laughs> I don't know what they call that. But it's possible. Another option is what's known as a whale shark, or this is also known as a rhinodon typicus. There is one, uh, there's a skeleton of one of these in a museum in Beirut, Lebanon, and there the whale shark head is bigger than a human. So these are, again, enormous creatures. They're not as big as the blue whale, especially in, in, in terms of uh, length. But the opening of their mouth, as you can tell from this picture here, is absolutely enormous. And you can, I mean, the main thing is, if, you can, if there's a kind of cavity for, for how they eat, and if, if, if that's their swallowing mechanism, then that would make, of course, sense that these are potential creatures. Um, there are stories about whale sharks that they have actually swallowed horses. There's another story that was told where they swallowed a reindeer. So these are potential animals that could have been um, in, the, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the story and the account that we're given here in the book of Jonah. Now, to jump into another side issue is, okay, well, what about 
people in, inside of fish. And there are actually a couple interesting accounts of people who have survived being inside of whales. In 1891, there's a story of this man named James Bartley. He was a whaler, and he was harpooning a sperm whale. He fell into the sea, and later they did capture the whale, and when they dissected it, they found him alive yet unconscious, and he survived. The only issue is it's hard to corroborate such a story because, specifically, the captain of the ship, his, his widow later said that none of that story actually happened. So we don't, we don't really know. There's another interesting story in the, 19, in the 1900s, this English sailor who was swallowed by a whale shark, a rhinodon, which is that second creature that I was telling you about. 48 hours later, after, after the man was swallowed, again, similar situation, hunting, he fell off the vessel. The whale shark came and swallowed him. 48 hours, the shark caught the, they caught the shark and again, the man was unconscious when they dissected him, and yet he was alive, and they actually interviewed him. This, this Dr. Harry Reimer interviewed him in 1926 and actually met him. He was known as the real, live, early 20th century Jonah of the modern age, basically. Um, although they did notice that his skin was very discolored and he had a lot of missing hair, which they think was partially because of the, the issue of... Uh, the, the acidic environment of a whale's stomach. I mean, you can just imagine, right, how gross that is, right? Yeah, okay, let's, we can leave it at that. <laughs> you don't need to get into this. And there are, there are more stories than what I've, I've put here. I just kind of put the ones that were the most fascinating and interesting as far as uh, thinking through this. Now, I do want to touch on this also because this is a really important issue before we get into Jonah's prayer about the connection between, between Jesus Christ and, and Jonah. The first is the fact that Jesus, in his ministry, talked about the fact that, this, that Jonah would be a sign about him. So let's actually just turn there real quick. Let's turn to, in the Gospel of Matthew, um, chapter 12, verse 40. So we've been in Matthew, so just a few chapters back from where we have been uh, with Pastor Aaron. It says here, speaking of the, speaking of the, uh, the Pharisees who were wanting to see a sign, he answers, and, and this is in verse 39 of Matthew chapter 12, it says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. They were wanting him to do more miraculous things, even more though, so than he had already done. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he goes on, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's a really interesting thing here, and, 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 and many people have looked into this and tried to figure out, well, what exactly is the, is the issue of the, of the parallel between these two passages? And what is, what is Jesus really getting at here? Well, there's, there's, there's two things. One is a, the issue of, of chronology. So according to most accounts, Jesus was crucified on a, on a Friday, right? We, we celebrate Good Friday, and was resurrected, like, basically two days later, which is three days total, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Easter, Sunday. I mean, that's what we've done for the last 2,000 years almost, right? Um, and so that 
if that's, if that's the case, then how many nights was he actually in the earth? It would be two nights, right? Not three. Um, now, some people have gone back and looked at the, the specific historical situation um, of the actual crucifixion itself and said, and this is one of the perspectives of a pastor that we very, admire, very much admire in, in Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, who said that uh, with some of the feast days, the way they lined up that year, that there would have been an extra day on the Thursday, and it's very likely that Jesus and the Passover would have been celebrated on Thursday, which would then allow for three full days and three full nights. So that's one possible way of interpreting it. Um, another way of going about it, because um, and, and the, the scriptures don't specifically tell us within that if that was the case. It's something you'd have to kind of research through finding out how things went with the calendars of the time. Another possibility, because um, I, really, I don't really know, so I'm just kind of presenting the information. Um, another possibility is that the words day and night maybe are not quite as literal as they would seem in the text. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because there was, a, there was a rabbi around 100 AD, his name was Eleazar ben Azariah, who said that a day and a night make a whole day. And a portion of a whole day is just reckoned as a whole day. So it's just a matter of semantics and, and, um, and, and language. If you say, for example, hey, on Saturday, we're going to go fishing, okay? Now, you don't know from that statement whether that means Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday plus Saturday night. All you're told is that you're doing this on a Saturday. So the idea is, was the implication of the text that day and night literally meant this, a 24-hour period, or just a portion of those, right? So anyhow, that's, that's one particular issue that is up in, it's up in the air. Um, the second issue, which I think is actually more relevant to this, or as, as far as our understanding of Scripture, is the issue of resurrection. When Jesus is saying there in Matthew 12, so as, as Jonah will be three days and three nights I'm sorry, I'm turning there again to read it. Let me make sure I get this right. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus, we know, was, was killed on the day of the crucifixion, be that a Thursday or Friday. He was in the earth dead, Right? So the, the issue that comes then to bear with the story of Jonah, and you'll see how this kind of plays out in our study of the prayer tonight, is, is Jesus saying that Jonah was also dead in the fish and was resurrected in the fish. We know that he prayed, but we're not told if, if he died or if he had some kind of experience there or what. So was Jonah himself... A, not just a, a, a precursor to the, the telling of and the sign of Jesus' resurrection, but was he also an Old Testament version of resurrection, or, re, or at least resuscitation? Depending on which scholars you read, there is a distinction between those terms. Resuscitation is where you were dead and you come back. Resurrection is you come back as a new, a new body. You know? So there is a slight distinction there. So was Jonah resurrected? Depending on which commentators you read, I've read both this week. I've read that there's no indication in the text that, that, uh, that Jonah died in the whale, 
Uh, there's no indication that he was resurrected, and, and, it, and it, it simply does not say that, nor does it say that he wasn't. So that's something that you have to kind of chew on here. This is not, and, I, and I don't think this is a, the kind of issue that is, well, you know, it's not going to destroy my faith. I hope it doesn't destroy your faith. But it is one of those issues that, with, that is kind of interesting as far as the study of, of Jonah. Was, was he part of that Old Testament resurrection? I will tell you this from one particular scholar that I, I find to be quite accurate and very, well, he, he, he really looks into details. It's J, it's J. Uh, Vernon McGee. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with J. Vernon McGee. Um, but his perspective was kind of interesting, which was that the resurrection, to have an example of this within the Old Testament was quite telling. Now, I think, I think the example and the sign of it is still there, even if there wasn't a resurrection. But the fact that, there, that Jonah would have had such a, a, such a potential experience in his life, that people would have attested to it, even the Ninevites hearing about this, would have been quite telling, and perhaps was part of the reason why we find out the Ninevites were so quick to, to kind of um, repent as Jonah's coming there, right? And we're not sure if Jonah showed up looking like one of these guys from the whales that we're talking about here, like maybe discolored and quite smelly and skinny, you know. They may have thought he was kind of some kind of ghost or some kind of creature. But anyhow, so those are, those are, the, those are two issues. And I'll touch back on one other thing with Jesus and Jonah. But let's now jump to the main portion of the text, which I haven't read yet, which is actually the prayer. So let's actually start again. Uh, at chapter 2, verse 1. And I'm just going to read through the whole chapter, so please read with me. Um, actually, I'm going to back up again to verse 17 of, of chapter 1. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is the place of death, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and, and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its, bar, with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed, Salvation is of the Lord. And then verse 10, So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. 
This is the end of chapter 2. So, and you know, when you, when you read this with the perspective of, of potential resurrection, and you think about the words that Jonah used, he uses the words like sheol, which is the place of the dead. He said, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, like as though he was actually in death. And you read things like, I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. He wasn't in earth. What is he referring to? Potentially, he really is preferring to this idea of his own death as he experienced it. Now, there's all kinds of interesting features about this prayer, right? When did he pray it? He prayed as he was descending and entering into the mouth. Did he pray, pray it after he was resurrected, if, if potentially he was? It, says, it does say then, and, I, and in some of the commentators, they actually encourage us not to read too much into then because it, it doesn't necessarily mean a chronological thing. But it is still there. And, we, and one, one thing we do know, in case I'm, I'm losing you with, well, what is really going on here is that he did pray from the belly. That is told us def, definitively in the text. And again, you... It, read through it a couple times. It's, it's a pretty powerful prayer. In fact, I was reading this about probably about a month ago, just, just kind of a, a precursory reading before, I, before coming in to teach it. And, and this prayer really stuck out to me for a variety of reasons. And I'm going to move past the kind of the issues that we talked about before, this issue of resurrection and then the fish and all that stuff. Because you can, honestly, you could end up, you can just argue about those things till the cows come home or until the whale comes home, in this case. Um, but I think there are some specific things within in the prayer itself that I think are worthy of our attention that really have to do with how we live and how we speak to God and the nature of, of prayer and repentance and all this kind of stuff. So let's, kind of, let's actually just jump through um, a couple of the key issues here in Jonah's prayer. First of all, Verse 2, when it says, And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. There are two really, really, really important things here to note. The first is that in reading the entire book of Jonah, this is the first time where Jonah speaks to God. And it's not just a speaking, it's a crying out. So he has gone from muteness, silence, running away, as I put there in the opening slide, escape artist, like trying to get out of it. He's gone from that full angle, 180, to now crying to the Lord. And I think there's, there's two really interesting things here for us to note. One is, what does it take for you and I to cry out to the Lord? With Jonah, he had to be in the proverbial pickle. Right? He had to be in a situation of desperation, even beyond the desperation of the storm. I mean, like heading towards the mouth of a fish before he would finally speak to God. And I think it's something for us as, as Christians, as believers, to really address in our own lives. Is like, okay, what does it take for me to speak to the Lord? Is it, do you have the kind of relationship with God where you are in a constant dialogue. I would say, I would say that's, that's the goal that God has for us in prayer with him, is that he would realize that his voice is there to speak to us through his word, through his spirit, and he is ready to hear us 
at any moment. I think this is really what Paul means when he says, pray without ceasing. He means, don't stop the communication between you and the Lord. This doesn't mean that while you're sleeping, you need to have your, your hand raised and your, your finger going through some kind of Hebrew text. No, no, not at all. It says, don't sever the communication. Let it be something that is continually going. Because our tendency as humans is when we get hurt, when stuff happens to me, or like with Jonah, when we're told to go in a different direction and we're like, it kind of chides against us, right? That, the goes that I spoke of last week. And it tends to kind of cause us to be like, well, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. The, the silent treatment, right? You guys have heard the, sil- the silent treatment, right? Well, we can do that with the Lord. So what does it take to get you to, to speak and to cry out to the Lord? That's the first thing. Or is the Lord maybe helping to kind of loosen that up, you know, kind of like applying grease to a chain, a rusty chain to kind of lubricate it so it's something that is becoming more and more common? I would strongly suggest speak and, and talk and listen to the Lord as much as you can. It will greatly benefit anyone's life. The second thing is, what is God's response to Jonah's crying out? Does he, and of course here in this prayer, it's all, it's, all, it's all one-sided. We're hearing Jonah's cry to the Lord and his realizations of things. Does the Lord stop him after the verse, first verse, for example? If, it, like, like if, 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 for example, the scripture is read like this, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my, and the Lord said, why should I listen to you? Now, the Lord could have said those things. He didn't. And the question I'm posing to you is this. Why didn't he? Why doesn't God do these things? In a certain kind of way, he would have had every right to be like, oh, you want me to listen to you now? (laughs) Right? Right? Those of you who have children, or if it'd be like, oh, you want me to talk to you now about this or whatever it is, you know, after having done this and this and this, you want, now you want the dessert after throwing the broccoli on the ground or whatever it is, or feeding it to the dog. And the thing to notice is that God doesn't do that at all. There's not even a hint of that. And I think we need to remember that in our relationships with God as well, is that even when you've gone through a season of messing up or a season where you've gone just 180, you've gone backwards even, right? Sometimes you think in your mind, well, God would never want to talk to me now, or I'm going to have to grease the wheels of this relationship a lot to get it going again. And the answer, that that couldn't be further from the truth. All it takes is just basically saying like, I got him, I'm here. And he's like, okay. Tell me what's going on. He's just, he's just, he's ready. He's just ready to hear you from wherever you are. No matter, no matter, no matter the wandering, no matter the sin, no matter the nature of even how you would judge yourself, he doesn't judge us the way we judge ourselves. He's different. So I think that's really important for us to know. If you screw up tomorrow, guys, Tomorrow's Thursday. If you screw it up (laughs) and you talk to God, he is ready to listen to you. 
And it's a lot better for us to remember that he's the one we should go to when we mess up rather than trying to fix it all ourselves, you know, because, well, we usually got into the mess because of ourselves anyways, right? That, that's not the way he wants relationship. He wants us to just come and be like, you know, I, I, I broke it again. Just earlier today, my, my son was washing his hands in the sink. And we thought it sounded like a normal hand washing. And of course, it, it turned out not to be. Um, he had been playing out in the mud and the muck and the mire. And he had no shoes on either, but he was in socks. And so he had gotten his socks just covered with sand and, and dirt and sticks, you know. And so my wife walks into the bathroom and the sink is just filled with mud, you know. It's like, it's not a normal head washing. It's like, what's going on here? What are you, what's going on? You know, it's just, and, he, you know, he, he lies about it. He's like, oh, you know, <laughs> the sticks fell from the ceiling, you know, or whatever it is. I forget what he said. You know, he just, he didn't want to get into trouble, Right. Um, and so I'm talking to him about this afterwards, and I'm like, I'm like Adam, you know, and I, I tell him because his name's Adam, he's our, he's our middle boy, and he, he loves to dig in the dirt, and we know this, we're not, we're not, you know, concerned about it, we named him Adam, it means red dirt, I told him that, I'm like, we named you Adam, we understand you're going to get in the dirt, you know, it's fine. <laughs> I'm like, but if you get, if you get really dirty, or your socks are filthy, and they got sticks, and it's, it's just a little bit too much, just come and tell us, you know, like just say, I need some help cleaning up because I've made a big mess. And we'd be happy to be like, oh, what happened? And oh, maybe you shouldn't wear socks next time. And oh, let me help you. And I said, just come to us. And he was like, he kind of had one of those looks at me like, oh, you mean I could have just talked to you? <laughs> it's like, yes, yes. If you had just talked to us, we would have understand and understood Dirty socks and, and filthy hands and sticks and things, and we would have advised you not to let them go down to the down the drain, because then that creates a lot bigger problems for plumbing and septic systems and all that stuff. But it's the same kind of thing. It's like when we've made a mess of it, just like I advise my son, just just go talk to the Lord. You keep sticks out of your septic system, okay? <laughs> the second thing that I noticed from this text. We covered about the, the shale thing. So he, he's definitely in a, a he, he knows he's, a, he's, afflic, he's afflicted. He says it because of my affliction. Out of the belly of Sheol. Um, he says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. We'll pause there. That's a pretty confident claim. For him to say, after, after not speaking to God for however long this was, to go from that to, I cried out, and out of shale, out of the place of death, and you heard me. Sometimes I wonder, are we as confident, even if we're not in as much rebellion as Jonah was, are we as confident in just the simple fact that the Lord does hear us? And the Lord sees us, and, and he knows. Because I don't know about you, but when, when I'm talking with, let's say I'm talking with a friend, and all they're doing is just kind of, they're just listening to me. They're listening. Maybe I've, I'm going through something, and they're just listening. 
that is as much the therapy that I need in those moments as the advice that may or may not then come out of their, their mouth or their suggestions. Just them like looking at me, listening to me, me knowing that they hear me is huge. And I'll, 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 I'll step into this for a second, but in marriage, this is one of the big things with husbands and wives. Wives so often need their husbands to just listen to them. We often, we jump into the, the fix-it mode. We're like, oh yeah, what'd they do? I'll get, you know, we do that, you know. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listening. Just listen. And you know what? Wives, you need to know, you also need to just listen to your husband sometimes. Because that's a big part of communicating understanding, love, and even acceptance. And so Jonah says here, you heard my voice. He knows something. He knows that the Lord, as, as soon as he's come back to speak, he knows that the Lord has, has heard him. And you know, there's a number of really amazing places in the Old Testament, I'm not going to jump into them right now, where those are the exact things that people experience with the Lord that is such a turnaround experience for them in their lives. Thirdly, so going on, out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice in verse 3, it says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Now, if you recall from chapter 1, when Jonah was cast into the waters, it says actually in verse 15 of chapter 1, so they, so they, that would be the sailors and the captain of the vessel, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. But that's not what Jonah records or says in this prayer, does he? He says, to God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Now, this is not, this is not blame language. He's not saying, you messed my life up. What he's getting at is another really interesting thing about understanding who God is in our lives, which is that in spite of all the things that happen to us on what I would call maybe the surface level, right? That would be relationships, jobs, money, property, conversation, culture. That's all our surface level. Underneath all of that is how the Lord is working all things out for good for those who love him, right? And what we even read about in, in Romans 8.28, let's actually look there really quickly. Romans, in the New Testament, verse 8.28, one of the go-to verses for when you're going through something. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good for those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. Those who are following after things, all things will work out for good. And this is what Jonah is realizing. He's not blaming God for being in the predicament. He's saying, you have set this into motion. You've got to think of your life as something that was set into motion from your birth, and you, you, there's a trajectory, there's a control, there's a, there's, a, there's a guiding hand that is still beneath all the things 
that happen to you. Now, this is not to say that God causes bad things, but he often allows them. He will, he will cause things and allow things that will shape your life, things that you don't like, things that are sometimes painful. Why? Because this all has to do with the idea of providence. Why does God shape our lives in such a way? Why does he allow us to go through certain seasons, certain predicaments, certain trials? Well, God is a maker of pots, as it tells us in the scriptures. He is described as a potter who has his hand on the wheel and he, he shapes it in the way that he wants it. And sometimes he remakes a section and sometimes he tears down the pot and he remakes and he, he builds and he makes vessels for his Holy Spirit to dwell in, vessels for him, for his glory, for his purposes, and for his honor. The goal of all of our lives is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are all to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so when Jonah is saying this, you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, he's recognizing that hand of providence that is shaping him even into this crazy situation that the Lord is still at work in his life, even into and unto the hand of, of, of death. And there's two more things. Verse 4, and this is my favorite verse of the entire chapter. So he talks about the, the heart of the seas, the floods surrounding him, the billows, the waves. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight. So this is like, I've been removed. Yet, and this is, if there's any word that I would suggest that you circle in this chapter, it's this word. Yet, in verse 4, in the middle of verse 4. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. This is a verse of such power because it is a verse of surrender. And it is a verse of him placing his hope and his future and his identity and his purpose all back at the feet of the Lord himself. And I don't know the situations in your lives where, where these things have maybe happened to you, but I know that in my life, when I get to the places within my trials, within my circumstances, where I say, all right, God, and I kind of take a big breath, I'm like, okay, I don't know what you're doing here, but I trust you. That's the same thing. That's looking again at the temple. That's looking again at your father, acknowledging his presence, his power, his supernatural providence again, that's connected to that idea, in your life. And saying, you've you got to work it out. I'm not sure how you're going to do it. I'm not sure why you're doing it this way. You know. Yet, I will look again. And this is such a beautiful word, also within the text, again. It, it points us to the fact that, yes, Jonah is in a place of disobedience now, in a place of jettisoning what he has been given to do, but it wasn't always this way, right? 
As, as we looked last week in that study of, of, of 2 Kings when he was used as a, as a prophet in the earth with King Jeroboam II, the Lord had spoken to him and given him a word of power and of fruit and of national conquest. My only assumption from this text then is that he had cried out and looked to that holy temple many times before in his youth. In fact, even being a prophet, he would have had to go through, often there were prophet schools, and they would have gone through certain educational uh, steps and processes and tests. So it's like he's coming back to where he was when he was first hearing and listening to the Lord. And I'll point this out. If if you in your life have come to a place practically where you remember a time maybe in the past where you were following more closely after the Lord and, and there's a kind of a, a, a beauty or a, uh, a fondness of that memory, don't think that that's the only time where that can happen in your life because it's not. Again, back to the nature of God. As soon as we co- come back to where He is guiding and leading us, it's as it's as though those years, right? As, as the scriptures say, the years that the locusts have eaten. What does the Lord do? He restores them. This is the kind of God Yahweh is. He's a restorer. He's a redeemer. I was just talking with a friend today at breakfast, and we were talking about the nature of life and all this stuff. And we were, we were kind of getting into a bit of a complainy section in our conversation, talking about these things that have happened, and why is it this way, and... And I was like, well, good thing God is the God of redemption. And he kind of looked at me and we were talking. And I was like, well, think about it, you know. Every bad situation you walk yourself into or out of, he's like, oh, how can we redeem this? He's like, how do we make this a vehicle for redemption? You're in my life's vehicles to show and demonstrate redemption. And lastly... Verse 7, I'm going to skip over verse 6 and come back to this actually in a bit. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Now again, he's referring a lot to this idea of of the temple, right? This is probably referencing Solomon's temple, uh, the grand uh, construction of which happened just actually not that far in, in, in history from where Jonah was. And the real word I want to draw your attention to is the word remembered. And I remembered the Lord. And so often this is, this is so key in our prayer, in our relationship with God, is just looking back and remembering that, wait a second, what did he do for me two weeks ago? And just think real quick in your, the real Rolodex of your own brains, what did God do for you two weeks ago that maybe you were concerned about? Or a month ago? Two months ago? Six months ago? Last year? Two years ago? Three? Five years? Ten years? Fifteen years? Twenty? Twenty-five? Do you remember some of the things that the Lord has done for you? Do you recall some of the ways that He has moved in your life? that you can recall and remember. Because those are like, those are like touchstones of faith that, that spur us on to remember, you know, if he did that before, 
if he rescued me then, if he helped me at that time, maybe he just got you through a rough night even. It's logical to remember that he will probably do it again. He has a pretty good track record of helping people, right? The best track record of anyone that I know. So remembering him. So just a couple of interesting things within the prayer that I think are very practical for us as, as followers. I want to move on and talk about this also. We know of Jonah as a prophet, but there are obvious tie-ins between Jonah's prayer and the book of Psalms, and I'm just going to point these out quickly. Um, there are four specific psalms that are, are referenced as uh, within Jonah's, uh, Jonah's prayer, which, is, which, is, which leads me to think that he probably was, had, was or had poured over the psalms at some point in his ministry. Now remember, David, mostly the writer of the psalms, as well as Asaph, a few of them was, with Solomon, from my recall, he talks about the temples. This is after their time. This is maybe a couple generations after David. So the book of Psalms would have been relatively new in their culture, and yet, interestingly enough, these ideas come across very strongly in Jonah's prayer. Just quickly to go through them, Psalm 18.6, which says, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple. Do you not hear the similarity? between that and what Jonah is crying. Psalm 42, 7, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. Again, referencing what Jonah was, was dealing with as he went through the waters. Psalm 31, 22 says, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. And lastly, Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit, which is, of course, exactly what we have here in verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. So in conclusion, just a couple of final thoughts uh, for Jonah chapter 2. As I mentioned before, there are some interesting, um, I wouldn't call them parallels, relationships, between the life of Jesus, the crucifixion specifically and resurrection, and Jonah. The first, of course, I talked about previously when I talked about the issue of, of resurrection. And again, if you read through and you notice the words like sheol and pit and all this kind of stuff, you can definitely see why those are strong relationships. And there are, there are interesting things also within the text, though, that I think even strengthen that relationship as far as what Jesus himself is referring to when he talks about just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. I think also he's referring to aspects of this prayer because there's definitely some things within here that I think would have easily paralleled what Jesus himself would have been going through. For example... In the sign of Jonah, this idea of Sheol and death would have definitely been something that Jesus was dealing with as yes, he was going through the crucifixion and knowing that he would be laid and, and dead for three years. There's also the issue of the moorings of the mountains. While it is true that Jonah was in this fish, that perhaps he was resurrected within it, 
he was not around any earth itself. So be that a kind of demonstration of just death or maybe, maybe more prophesying in certain ways about what Jesus would then go through, almost like what David would do in some of the Psalms, speaking prophetically about the crucifixion. Perhaps that is also going around here. And then, of course, the issue of the bars of earth. I can only think about Jesus being laid in the tomb, right, of Joseph of Arimathea, the, the stone coming over, him being in the heart of the earth. And the idea of the, of the pit, that place of, of death, that place of Sheol, the place of being captured. And bars of earth. This is such, so interesting. Earth, earth doesn't have bars, and yet it's described as though, well, I mean, there's, there's, there is iron in the earth. I don't know if it, that's one possible interpretation. Perhaps, yeah, I mean, perhaps, yeah, but again, again, getting to the earth, so, so there are kind of some cross metaphors, and I, I mean crosses in just a regular cross, not that cross, but so there are just some interesting things within the text that I think also parallel um, what Jesus went through in the crucifixion, and then, of course, the idea of resurrection, very strong within this too, because Jonah is indeed vomited out onto dry land. And the last thing to leave you with tonight is the last two verses um, from his prayer. Because Jonah kind of turns a bit of a corner here in verse 8 and 9. And he goes from what I would call kind of a prayer of, of witness or a prayer of experience. And he actually goes more into a kind of a prophetic and teaching um, perspective when, when, when we read verses 8 and 9. And I just want to talk about these briefly before we finish our night. Again, in verse 8, he says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Now, obviously, Jonah had experienced the idea of going after something that is worthless or fake, right? He had been running away. But he makes this interesting point about what is really happening in the, the human mind, in the human heart, in the soul. Those who regard worthless idols, those who look at what is not going to fulfill you, what is not going to sustain you, an idol, right? An idol is anything that you, you decided to spend the majority of your time with in place of God, right? An idol is something that replaces who God is supposed to be in your life as your Lord, as your Savior, as your friend, as your, as your prayer partner. He says, those who regard worthless idols... And what is the fruit of that? I mean, obviously, obviously you'll hear people say, well, don't get idols out of your life because they're bad for you. But it goes deeper than that. It says here, those who do that forsake their own mercy. Which is to say that God has a kind of an allotment of mercy, and I'm not saying that he has a certain amount, so please don't mishear me. He has mercy that he wants to pour into your life to, to wash away sin, or, or behaviors that are unbecoming of him. He has, he has things that he wants to give you. He has, he has his own mercy that he wants for each one of you. He wants you to partake in it. He wants you to, to bathe in it, to, to understand it, to, to love it. It's, it's actually somewhat related to, to, to the beginning of Jonah's prayer where he is saying, he's, he's quickly saying, you're, you're going to hear me, Lord. You, you've heard my voice. I'm going to return to you. And and with like the knowledge that God is going to then pour out into him because that's the nature of God. And he's saying, 
God wants to do this in your life. God wants to do this in my life. He wants to give you this storehouse of mercy for all the things that you have to go through. But when you regard worthless idols, what you're actually doing here in a kind of maybe psychological sense is you are forsaking the mercy that he has for you. It's like he has this great, wonderful treasure and you're just saying, nah, I'd rather have the dust bunnies, you know. (laughs) And yes, I do need to vacuum my house. (laughs) And then he ends here, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, which is, which is incredible. He's coming to, to the Lord now in the end of his prayer. I will sacrifice with thanksgiving. This is really the heart of what thanksgiving and sacrifice is all about. Right? The sacrifices of praise. I don't know if you've read that in the scriptures. The sacrifice of praise. Do you think of praise as a sacrifice? It is. You have to lay down all the things you want to elevate, all the things that you want your life to be about, and you have to give space and time and effort to giving him glory. That takes sacrifice. That takes time. Sometimes you'll be in here singing during a worship set and you're not going to feel like singing. It's a sacrifice. That praise, that, that thanksgiving is a sacrifice. The more you do it, the better. And it says now to end it, I will pay what I have vowed. And this is perhaps an indication that he has made some kind of vow to God earlier in his life. And he is now saying, I'm going to do it, or maybe go finally along with the word that, he, that the Lord gave him at the beginning of the chapter, right? Go to Ninevites. I will pay what I vowed. And then the most beautiful sentence here, salvation is of the Lord, is of Yahweh. Now, what a sentence to read in the Old Testament, right? Salvation is of the Lord. You know, so often we think in our lives that we're going to be saved by any number of things. If only the finances were better, right? If only the relationships were better. If only this was better. If only that were better. If we had this, or if we didn't make, maybe you go back into the vast of your life. If I only had not done this, I had only not attended to this, and if I had not gone in that direction, or been with this person, or, you know, the cycle of your thinking, whatever it is. None of those things could save you. Even if they all went right, they wouldn't have saved you. If you had a perfect life until now, it wouldn't save you. If you had a perfect life from now till the grave, that wouldn't save you either. If you had a perfect childhood, it wouldn't save you. If you had a perfect college experience, it wouldn't have saved you. There's only one thing that can. God himself, through his Son, Salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord alone. And I think to end with that thought and then, so the Lord spoke to the fish, right? Having heard those words from his servant Jonah, salvation is from you, Lord. And then for the Lord to be like, watch this. Can you imagine him getting the angels around? This would be like the Sunday night football in heaven, right? Guys, check this out. It's going to go out of, the, out of the whale. Come on. Salvation is of the Lord. And you can, I don't know, hands raised, something in the nasal cavity of the whale or you know, dealing with the digestive juices or having just been resurrected or whatever it was. And then the Lord says, okay, watch this. So the Lord spoke to the fish. 
And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. As soon as he says, salvation is of the Lord. (laughs) Dry land, he lands. Let's pray. Lord, we want to just reiterate this last sentence, and and we want to say with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, with the sacrifice of praise, right now in this house, that salvation is from you. It's, It's through Jesus Christ. It's from you, and it's for us. You want us to know that our being saved is a work that you alone attend to, and that with you, it is abundant. It's not just like half salvation or, or anything like that. You, you tell us through the words of Jesus, you say that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no way to the Father but by him. Truly, Lord, salvation is of you, and it's also, it's your idea. You are the master of it and the, even the creator of the idea itself. And we are so thankful, Lord, tonight that we can just say that in spite of whatever may be going on in our lives, if we know you, if we've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, if we've received you, if we've been born again, we can say, I'm saved. Come what may, I'm saved because salvation is of the Lord. And in your precious name we pray. Amen.